We're starting a series this morning in the um, book of Jacob. Everybody's going, what? The book of Jacob. Oh, you call it the book of James. Do you know in the Greek, it's Jacobus? It's Jacob in the Greek. Do you know who changed it to James? The person that King James hired to translate the scriptures. His name was Jacob. And as a beginning, I just want to read the first couple, first verse of this book. Bear with me. And then this morning, we're just going to have an introduction to the book. And then in the weeks to come, we'll go through it verse by verse by verse. I don't know about you, but some, sometimes I wish that the Bible was alphabetical. You know what I mean? Okay. You see, you know, say, please turn to the book of Philippians, and everybody turns to the table of contents. Anyway, James chapter 1 and just verse 1. Would you stand with me as I read God's word? Jacob, a servant of God and of the Lord Yeshua HaMashiach, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. You may be seated. The book of Jacob is a book about faith. The book of Jacob probably should be the second thing that a new disciple gets discipled with. The first thing should be the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching on the hill, if you will, because that's the first discipleship lesson that our Messiah took his disciples through. But this book of Jacob and we'll get into it in a minute, talks so much about things that are mentioned in that teaching. And it's also one of the earliest books, if not the earliest book, that I believe this should probably be the second thing that a new disciple goes through when he or she is being discipled. Faith without works cannot be called faith. That's one thing this book tells us about. There's a bunch more. Faith without works is dead, and a dead faith is worse than no faith at all. Faith must work, it must produce, and it must be visible. Verbal faith is not enough, and mental faith, besides being insufficient, is even worse. Faith must be there but it must be more. It must lead to and inspire action. And throughout this letter, to Jewish believers scattered outside of the land of Israel, Jacob integrates true faith and everyday practical experience by stressing the simple truth that true faith manifests itself in works of faith. True faith manifests itself in works of faith. So, I think that a question should be asked is this. How does faith manifest itself into good works? How, in fact, does faith manifest itself into good works? Well, here's the Ten Commandments of faith leading into works. Good works. Number one, faith endures trials. Faith endures trials. In all of our lives, 
Trials come and trials go. But a strong and active faith will face them head on and will help us to develop endurance. Number two, faith understands temptations. Faith understands temptations. Faith will not allow us to consent to and submit to our selfish lusts, which slide and slip into sinful behavior. Number three, faith obeys the word of God. Faith obeys the word of God. An active faith will not just hear and read the word, it will do and obey the word. Every week we sing the Shema, and it's translated, Hear, O Israel. But the understanding is that it's hear and obey, O Israel. And so faith obeys the word. Number four, faith produces doers. Doers. Not doers, like D-E-W-A-R-S. Oh, only a couple of you got that one. <laughs> I know who's smiling out there. Doers, D-O-E-R-S. Faith produces doers. True faith is an engine for good works. Number five, faith does not harbor prejudice. Faith does not harbor prejudice. For Jacob and for us, faith and favoritism cannot coexist. Number six, Faith displays itself in works. Faith is more than just mere words. It is more than just knowledge. It is demonstrated by obedience, and it outwardly responds to the promises of God. Our works, please listen, are the witness of our faith or lack of it. Number seven, faith controls the tongue. Only true faith can control and hold in check this small but immensely powerful part of our bodies. Number eight, faith acts wisely. Faith acts wisely. It gives us the wisdom and the understanding to choose wisely between what is heavenly and what is earthly, between what is spirit and between what is flesh. Number nine, faith produces separation from the world and submission to God. Faith produces separation from the world and submission to God. In other words, it provides us with the ability to resist the devil and humbly draw near to our God. And finally, number 10, faith waits patiently for the coming of the Lord. Faith waits patiently for the coming of the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 8 says it best. It says it like this, quote, Be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, I need to just kind of take a sidestep from the message. See how I did that? Wasn't that theatrical? Oh, well. There's a fervor for the coming of Messiah rising up in Israel. And it's a crazy reason why. There was a rabbi, I say was a rabbi, because he died some 13 years ago. His name was Rabbi Yitzhak Kaduri. Yitzhak Kaduri. Rabbi Kaduri 
lived to be 108 years old. Rabbi Kaduri was born in Iraq. He was a Sephardic Jew and also a member of the Kabbalah group. Now, I am not endorsing Kabbalah. It is Jewish mysticism. I'm only giving you his credentials, be they good or bad. And when he died, they found his writings that he had set out to be read after he died. And one of them said this, I have met Messiah and his name is Yeshua. That's not all. Recently, they have discovered that some 30 or 40 years before Rabbi Kaduri's death, one of his students asked him, what will be the sign of the coming of Messiah? Rabbi Kaduri's answer was, there will be elections in Israel, but no government. Oh, you all are not reading the internet. There will be elections in Israel, but no government. One of his disciples who worked with him, supposedly wrote a book. Now, I say supposedly because these Sephardic Kabbalistic writings are kept by the Kabbalistic Sephardic rabbis only to be seen by future generations of Sephardic Kabbalistic rabbis. But the word in Israel is that one of these books actually states that the two men who will be elected without government, both of their first names will be Benjamin as in Benjamin Netanyahu and Benny Gantz, the two people who are fighting for power in Israel. To top that off, there's another prophetic tradition, and again, these are all prophecies. They're not mine, because if they don't come true, I don't want you to stone me to death. (laughs) There's another prophecy that when the Hulda, H-U-L-D-A, synagogue is rebuilt in the heart of the old city of Jerusalem, and it was rebuilt some four or five years ago, that that generation would see the coming of Messiah. That generation will see the coming of Messiah. Now, why am I telling you all this? I don't want you to go out and tell all your neighbors, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. Rabbi Dennis told us Messiah is coming. I did not say that. I said that's what's springing up in Israel. But what does the book of Jacob tell us? Be patient. Be patient, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Whether it's in my generation or my children's generation, I don't know. But the works that is produced by faith doesn't depend on when the Messiah returns. It depends on the opportunity that the Lord gives you now to do his work. Well, this letter is addressed to, and I read it before, chapter 1, verse 1, the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. Meaning, it's addressed to Jewish believers that at the time were outside of the land. And it's interesting, the place of meeting in this book is called the synagogue. Now, in the translations, it says assembly, but in the Greek, it's synagoga, which is a synagogue. And the whole letter reflects Jewish thought, and the whole letter reflects Jewish expression. It was written by a Jewish man to a Jewish audience who had been dispersed from the land of Israel for whatever reason we are not told. And it seems to me that these Jewish believers were dealing with problems that were testing their faith. I mean, why else would the book be all about faith if there wasn't a problem with faith? And Jacob was concerned. He was concerned that they were succumbing to things like impatience, Things like bitterness, things like materialism, 
problems of disunity, problems of spiritual apathy. In other words, this letter is totally applicable to us today. Amen? Amen. And according to the historian (coughs) Josephus, Jacob was martyred in around A.D. 62. A.D. 62. Now, some say that the letter could have been written as early as A.D. 45. And in fact, there are a few indicators that suggest that this letter could possibly be the earliest writing found anywhere in the Brit Hadashah. A couple of reasons why they say that. Number one, in this letter, there's no mention of Gentile believers or their relationship with Jewish believers. Interesting to me, anyway. This is something that you would expect in a a later uh, written uh, letter, dated later. Also, aside from references to the person of Messiah, there's no real distinctive discussion of theology in the entire letter. To me, what this suggests is an early date when, quote, the way, as the Messianic Jewish believers were called back then, was simply understood in Messianic Jewish terms without really having to worry about coordinating and integrating Gentile believers into this, quote, unquote, Jewish new way. Third, use of words like synagogue and in chapter 2, verse 2, a very simple organization of elders and teachers. We we find that in in chapter 3, and also in chapter 5. It suggests the pattern of the early first century synagogue. And, and lastly, of interest to me, there's no mention of the Acts 15 council in Jerusalem. By the way, that took place in A.D. 49. So I would tend to believe that this book was written in A.D. 45 or so, and it's the earliest book written in the entire Brit Hadashah. In chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 1, Jacob refers to the Lord Yeshua HaMashiach. And in chapter 5, 7 and 8, he anticipates what he calls the coming of the Lord. But compared to the other authors of the Brit Hadashah, he really says very little of Messiah directly. But as you read through this letter, and I hope you do, Every week before you come to Shabbat services, I hope you read those five chapters. As you read through the letter, the teaching of Messiah, the teachings of Messiah are alluded to throughout the entire epistle. And specifically, the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching on the hill, the first discipleship lesson of our Messiah Yeshua is indirectly referenced some 19 times. 19 times. And so for those of you who like to take copious notes, I'm going to tell you where they're referenced, both in James, Jacob, excuse me, and also in the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, having joy in the midst of trials. Jacob 1-2, Matthew 5-10-12. Second, the exhortation to be perfect, James 1.4, Matthew 5, 4-8. Third, asking God for good things, Jacob 1.5, Matthew 7, 7-11. Fourth, God the giver of all good things, Jacob 1.17, Matthew 7.11. Warnings against anger. 
Jacob 1.20, Matthew 5.22. Being hearers and doers of the word. James 1, Jacob 1.22, Matthew 7.24-27. The poor inheriting the kingdom. Jacob 2.5, Matthew 5.3-5. Keeping the whole law. Jacob 2.10, Matthew 5.19. Being merciful in order to receive mercy. Jacob 2.13, Matthew 5.7. To be known by our fruits. Our fruits are our witness. Jacob 3.12, Matthew 7.16. Do you want me to continue with the verse references or just the commonalities? Verse references. The blessings of peacemakers. Jacob 3.18, Matthew 5.9. Ask and you will receive. When we get to that, you'll find out it doesn't mean what you think it means. Jacob 4.2-3, Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Serving God versus friendship with the world. Jacob 4.4, 4, Matthew 6.24. Comfort for mourners. Jacob 4, 9 and 10, Matthew 5, 4. Warnings against judging others. None of us do that, right? Jacob 4, 11 to 12, Matthew 7, 1 to 5. Living for today. Living for today. Living in the moment. It's the way Tina and I put it. Jacob 4, 13 and 14, Matthew 6, 34. The fact that Moth and rust spoiling earthly treasures is true. Jacob 5, 2 and 5, Matthew 6, 19. The understanding of prophets as examples. Jacob 5, 10, Matthew 5, 12. And finally, warnings against making oaths. Jacob 5, 12, Matthew 33 to 37. And so, if you were to summarize this letter, it it develops the theme of the characteristics of true faith. Characteristics of true faith. And I believe that Jacob effectively uses these various characteristics as a series of tests, a series of tests to help the reader, to help us evaluate the quality of our relationship to Messiah by the fruits of our faith. The book of Jacob is not doctrine. The book of Jacob is not an apologetical book. It's practical. It's very practical. And dear ones, it is convicting. And so I've asked you to read it, all five chapters, every week before you come to Shabbat, in addition to whatever other reading you do. And I'm going to ask you to read it not like the Washington Post, Because the Washington Post can't talk back to you, but the scripture can. I want you to read it expecting to hear something from the Lord. This test was for these Jews scattered abroad in the early time after Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection. It's also for all of us. It challenges us to examine the quality of our daily lives in terms of our attitudes and in terms of our actions. In a way, 
I guess you could say the book could be seen as the Proverbs of the Brit Hadashah. The Proverbs of the Brit Hadashah. It is wisdom literature. And while it's hard to outline because of the many topics that it discusses, there are three main uh, issues that it discusses, and there are three main sections in this, script, in this book. First, I would call the test of faith, the test of faith. It's found in chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 18, the test of faith. The second deals with the characteristics of faith. This goes from chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through the final chapter, chapter 5, verse 16. And then finally, we have the triumph of faith. The triumph of faith. Chapter 5, verse 7, to the end of the book, verse 20. This book is a strong reminder to all of us that faith must produce good fruit. Faith must produce good fruit. And in this book, all through it, Jacob uses what I would call very appealing images. He shows his compassionate heart for his people. And he has strong advice to urge us to live out our faith. To live out our faith. And that's what we'll be looking at in the coming weeks. And in addition, when you think about it, every aspect of our life is determined by the action we take or don't take based on what we believe, even in non-spiritual spheres. For instance, how many of you have ever had a neighbor who has seen you and says to you, uh, are you doing okay? Uh, no, I'll pray for you. Is that the next sentence that should come out of their mouth? No. I don't think so. The next set- sentence that should come out of their mouth is, how can I help? Well, I, I need some food because the, the, uh, the pocketbook is ending before the month is this month. Oh, wow, that's awful. I'll pray for you. When we bear each other's burdens, we're acting out of faith. When we just pray for someone in order to get them away from us, our faith is dead. And a dead faith is an ugly faith, faith in this rabbi's eyes. So we'll be looking at all of those various, various aspects of faith. Well, that's the introduction. But I wanted to just give you some thoughts about our trip to Israel. As you know, uh, Tina and I left for Israel, I think it was October 22nd. Uh, we did not return till November 4th. Uh, we were in the land for 11 days, and then we took a three-day extension to Petra. Has anybody ever been to Petra? Wow. I don't know if it's worth the trip. It is. <laughs> One thing we can say, Leslie, is we've seen one of the seven wonders of the world. It's, it's rather amazing. Um, the problem with our trip is it was, um, and I don't mean this as an offense to anybody, just as a characteristic, the average age of the trip was about 74. Um, and it was hard walking. It was a two-mile walk to get down to uh, what they call the sanctuary at Petra, and then a two-mile walk back up to get to the sanctuary. And it's not paved either. And gee, it just, it, it amazed me how at the bottom of the walk, they just happened to have these horse-drawn carts that would take you back up for $40. And so I would say about half of our people uh, took the ride back up. 
But I will tell you that what is happening in Israel is interesting because Israeli politics is starting to mirror U.S. politics in that the goal of politics is not to bring good to the country. The goal of politics is defeat, to defeat your foe. And that's what's going on in Israel. There will probably be a third election in Israel, unheard of. As a matter of fact, there's a movement in the Knesset of members who want to change the voting policies so that instead of voting for representatives, what's called MKs, instead of voting for representatives, people at the next election will vote directly for the prime minister. And whoever gets the most votes wins. Now, that goes totally against parliamentary procedure, uh, but we'll see what happens. Who knows? Maybe Rabbi Kaduri is right. But the other thing that we notice in Israel is that young Israel is turning more and more to their Messiah. (laughs) I'm talking about young people about to enter the army, young people in the army, and young people just coming out of the army. Because they're the ones with open minds. They're the ones that see Israel as it is today without figuring that Israel is like it used to be. Because it's not like it used to be. As I've said before, they have a new national bird. It's called the crane, as in the building crane, because you can't go anywhere in Israel without them building something. The prices in the major cities are skyrocketing to become equal with places like New York and Los Angeles. As a matter of fact, the home that Tina and I owned in Jerusalem, and that was we sold that in 2011. So that's what, 10 years ago? No, eight years ago. Has doubled in price. That's what's going on because land is scarce in Israel, at least land that is um, habitable uh, for people to live on, not land in the desert. However, this is what's also going on in Israel. How many of you have been to Israel? Okay. How many of you know that the Sea of Galilee is going down? How many of you know that the Dead Sea is going down? How many of you know that there's a canal being built between the Red Sea and the Dead Sea? A couple of you. But the canal is for this purpose. It's being financed by international financiers so that Jordan can take the water from the Red Sea and desalinate it and use it to irrigate their farmlands instead of taking water from the Sea of Galilee, which Israel has been giving them for the past three decades. So, without the drain on the water from the Sea of Galilee, they actually expect the Sea of Galilee to start rising again. As a matter of fact, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you've gone, I mean to Israel, you've probably gone to a place called Ginosar. Who remembers Ginosar? Ginosar is where you get the boat ride out on the Sea of Galilee. Okay, and there's a long ramp that goes out to the Sea of Galilee. For the first time that I've ever seen, there was actually water on either side of the ramp back where there used to be nothing but dry land. So the Sea of Galilee is slowly coming up again. It should also have an effect on the Dead Sea because if the water is not drained off of the Sea of Galilee then what will happen is more of it will flow down the Jordan River into the Dead Sea, and hopefully the Dead Sea will stop its decline. Its decline has been a meter a year for the past hundred years. A meter a year for the past hundred years. 
There's one place in Israel, if you ever go to us, go with us to Israel, as you're driving along what's called um, Route 90 that goes from the Dead Sea, actually goes from Eilat all the way up to Tiberias and farther up to the north. There's one place as you're driving around that you can see a mark, actually two marks on the rock. If you're going north, it's on the left-hand side of the road. And the mark was put there by an expedition of British explorers in the early 1900s. They were in a boat when they marked the level of the Dead Sea. It's about 100 feet from where the Dead Sea is right now. But we know what's going to happen to the Dead Sea, amen? When the Lord steps his foot on the Mount of Olives, there's going to be an an earthquake, and the mountain is going to split in two from north to south. Water will flow from the Temple Mount both to the Great Sea, which is the Mediterranean, and the Dead Sea, to the east, and the Dead Sea will come alive again. And the desert will come alive again. And the promises that God made through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36 will come alive again. That the land will become better than it was at its beginnings. Because the name of the Lord is to be pronounced all over the world. And even the land, Ezekiel says in chapter 36, will know uh, that he is God. So another thing going on in Israel, more and more tourists are going to Israel. I don't understand it. I mean, I kind of do, but I don't. And they're coming from everywhere. They're coming from the Far East. They're coming from South America. Uh, they're coming from Europe. And there's, there's more tour guides and more tour buses and more tours in Israel than I've ever seen in my life. We went to, the, um, to uh, Capernaum. And the buses literally could not get into the parking lot. They lined up outside the parking lot. They let the people off. People walked into Capernaum. And then by the time we were finished there, your bus had inched its way up to the front of the parking lot to make your way back out. That's good and that's bad. It's good because tourism is such an incredible part of Israel's industry and Israel's economy. It's bad because everywhere you went, you had the same problem. The same problem at the Mount of uh, Beatitudes uh, and the same problem uh, elsewhere. But it's always good to go back to Israel, at least for Tina and I. Um, but not as good as coming back home to Son of David. And I say that with all, with all sincerity and, and with, from the depth uh, of my heart. Um, it's one thing to say Israel's our home, but you're our family. And so it kind of puts us in this position, you know. We've got home and family Family comes first. And so we are so glad to be with you again um, um, back here at Son of David to see what God has planned uh, for this congregation. By the way, next tour is in April of 2021. 21. So start saving your shekels about a year and a half from now. And um, it promises to be better than ever because every year we learn more and more. Um, So we would love to have some of you come along with us. Well, that's a little bit about what's going on in Israel, um, a bit of an introduction uh, to the book of Jacob, and um, let's end with prayer. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father and our King, you're the Holy One of Israel. Your arraignment is splendor and heavenly glory. 
You know the beginning from the end, the north from the south, the east from the west, the up from the down, and the inside from the out. And you're in all of those places all at one time. That is pretty amazing, Lord. Yet, Father, give us the understanding and the wisdom to know that we can only meet you in the here and now. We can only meet you in the present. We can only meet you in the moment. As our Messiah said, why worry about tomorrow? Today has enough problems of its own. And so, Lord, my prayer as we go through this book of Jacob in the next few weeks or even months is that we understand the present relationship we have with you. Please, Lord, for those of us who uh, have the problem of living in the past, who live a what-if lifestyle, what if I'd done this, what if I'd done that, what if I hadn't done this, what if this had happened, what if that had happened, and, and for those who, who tend to live out their lives in the present, if only this would happen, if only that would happen, would you remind us all, Lord, that when you said you are the I am, not the I will be or the I was, the I am is with us right now. And so let us live in the moment. Let us live in the present. Let us adore you, exalt you, and praise you with everything that is in our being. And I pray this for my brothers and sisters in your son's precious and holy name. And let us all say together, Amen. Amen.